You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Robert McCauley, who is an emeritus professor at Emory University, where he was the director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture. And he's also the author or co-author of many books, including Rethinking Religion, Bringing Ritual to Mind, this book called Why Religion is Natural and Science is Not. And of course, the most recent book, which is called Hearing Voices and Other Matters of the Mind, What Mental Abnormalities Can Teach Us About Religions. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. Now, I want to focus mainly on this book, which is uh, Why Religion is Natural and Science is Not. And you're someone who is sitting kind of at the interface of cognitive science and 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 biology. You talk uh, a bit about evolution in the book. And when you say that religion is natural and science is is not, I think there will be people who will agree and disagree with different parts of, of the argument, which is really quite subtle. But among evolutionary biologists, I think plenty of them would be willing to go along with the claim that religion is natural, but they'll go to great lengths to come up with a functional story right? They'll talk about how it is either functional at the individual level, giving individuals some survival advantage, or there'll be a kind of a, a group selection story around religion. But I, I think your, your argument as to the naturalness of religion is, is a little bit different. It's not a functional one. It's, it's I guess we could call it a, a, a spandrel story or a byproduct story. Is, is that, would that be a fair description? Yeah, fairly routinely, the position is known as the byproduct theory or byproduct view. I should point out right at the outset, perhaps, that there's nothing about this story that's inconsistent with a functional account. That is to say, both can be true at the same time. And, you know, I think there's some evidence for functional accounts, both at the individual and the collective level. But what I'm interested in principally are the sort of cognitive foundations of religion, and in particular, the, the sorts of forms that religious representations take. And the, the argument is just that we've got minds that are built in, in particular ways, uh, in part by evolution and part by sort of our cultural and social circumstances. And those ways inevitably have an influence on sort of the forms that any number of cultural products take, but certainly religions. And so, in short, certain kinds of representation are just going to be more appealing to uh, human minds than other kinds of representations. And the overall thesis of the book, of course, is, is that religious representations are ones that have evolved to, by way of cultural evolution, to take forms that tend to be quite appealing to human minds for the most part. And that's in striking contrast to scientific representations, which typically don't. The argument looks in part to some of the work that has arisen in evolutionary psychology, which is to say that whether or not we have a kind of a rigorously modular mind or not, I'm not sure is, is so crucial. But the notion that we do have certain sorts of domain-specific capacities, that there are just a lot of problems that humans and our human and our ancestors had to solve in order to get by in the world and propagate it. But you also mentioned that there there is no department of religion in, in the brain. And there are others that have 
mentioned things like, you know, the God gene, which of course you, you don't even mention that theory, right? So you're arguing that it's, there's no religion module, but rather it is part of the, the general cognitive, it's an outgrowth of the general cognitive architecture of humans, right? Yeah, precisely. The argument is that, and this is why it's a byproduct view, which is to say that the forms that religious representations take have to do with cognitive dispositions and our mental lives that don't have anything to do with religion. And they don't even necessarily have anything to do with one another. I mean, um, of course, illustrations probably would be helpful. Human beings are, are quite sensitive about hazards in their environments. And there are a whole host of folks who have done research on sort of our hazard precaution systems. One way of uh, sort of snapping to attention on this for, I think, probably most American listeners would be at least, I'm getting fairly old, I'm emeritus after all by now, but at least when I was a kid, it was called cooties. And, you know, it was a game that we all played. And, and it wasn't that anybody ever instructed you in that game, but the notion was it was a kind of mock play at hazard precaution. Everybody knows the rules of cooties, right? I mean, if I'm the person who has cooties and I touch you on your shoulder, you've got cooties now. And you don't just have cooties right there where I touched you. You've got cooties all over, right? And then you go off and you touch someone else and, and cooties spread. Probably an apt illustration in these pandemic days we're living through. So this is the, the contamination management system that you reference in, in the book, right? Sure. Exactly. And, you know, I, I suppose a listener uh, who has, you know, not familiar with the work would instantly sort of respond, well, you know, what's this have to do with religion? Well, the suggestion is that uh, there's an awful lot about things like the designation of sacred spaces that have everything to do with cueing precisely that sort of hazard precaution system. The point about it is, is that it's immediate, it's instant, well, it's instantaneous, it's intuitive, it's robust, and it's basically unconscious. That is to say, if we know that there's a hazard in our environment, we know to sort of, for example, if, if that substance sitting over there is poison, right, we sort of keep our distance from it, and probably more, and we don't touch it, and, and we know a whole bunch of things like that. Well, I mean, religions enlist these kinds of intuitive inferences when they mark off a sacred space. I mean, the point is people know instantly. They don't have to, you know, sit down and read a book about this or anything like that. It, it's there. And the argument is that there are a whole host of, of these kinds of capacities. And they're comparatively, don't, there's, I think, ample evidence that they're comparatively domain-specific capacities. And it looks like Religions, but not just religions. I mean, a number of, of uh, cultural systems around the world, you know, can sort of cue these capacities. And once they're cued, they fire automatically. The sort of parade case for this historically has been our acquisition of natural language. I mean, babies don't need to be taught natural language. They just hang around with people who are speaking and they start speaking. They gain a command of the language of, of their culture. We're a talkative species. Well, again, you know, I mean, well, how does religion enlist this? The point about this is, is that let's go back for just a second and review sort of the automaticity about language. Yeah, I was going to say, we should probably define both natural and religion, maybe start with natural. I think this book came out probably before uh, Kahneman's book. Otherwise, you may have 
kind of reference to system one, system two, you, you, you came out simultaneously. Right? <laughs> so, so, you know, you talk about kind of in, intuition and reflective, so reflective cognition and more intuitive cognition, but then with, within intuitive cognition, you, you talk about more natural and more practiced intuition, right? So there's the riding a bicycle, which is, becomes intuitive, but requires some some practice, maybe some teaching, and the more intuitive intuition, which includes things like how to walk, how to chew, how to how to speak, and and grammatically and so forth, right? Yeah, uh, I actually I don't cite Kahneman's book because I hadn't seen it yet when I wrote the book, but they came out the same year. But I'm suggesting that Kahneman's uh, distinction perfectly appropriate, but that within uh, System One, there's a further distinction to be made, and that's a distinction between uh, what I've called maturational naturalness and practice naturalness. That is to say, how is it that we have intuitions about things? Well, in short, I'm suggesting there are two possible sources. I mean, there's a great deal of debate that has been raging for decades about sort of the origins of what I'm calling maturationally natural systems, arguments about innateness and, you know, genetic blueprints and that sort of thing. And, and things like things like embodied cognition, that, that would be part of this maturational intuition, right? Well, embodied cognition, I think, can be either. <laughs> I okay. think it can be that say, some of it is probably maturational and some of it is practice. But, but like our, practice fo our, folk, our folk understanding of, of physics, right? Our ability to use the example of, you know, when you see something rolling off the table, you know, you, you, you reach for it and grab it without doing any kind of trigonometry, right? And that's presumably something that you didn't need a teacher, you didn't need a, a course, you didn't need to kind of major in um, physics to grab that ball before it falls off the table, right? Yeah, exactly. Though, I mean, you know, how you get evidence about these matters, among other things, uh, one of the principal forms of evidence has been, you know, the flourishing developmental psychology in the last four or five decades, you study babies. And it comes as some surprise that babies prior to about six months of age don't have any presumptions about gravity. They're unsurprised by the notion that something might just float in the air, for example. That actually comes a little later than certain other physical intuitions. The evidence suggests that as young as perhaps even three months of age, Babies are already clear that two objects can't occupy the same space at the same time. And if they are presented with a display that sort of, you know, magically, so to speak, looks like that's what's happened, that attracts their attention in significantly longer uh, chunks of time than it would be, as opposed to them seeing, say, a ball floating in the air. Uh, well, the fundamental is even gravity is. It's not something that's there right at the outset, it doesn't seem. Now maybe I should stop you there because, you know, as when you talk about how science is, is sort of unnatural, there are people that would argue that the way in which children come to understand things like gravity is through something similar to scientific method, right? That they engage in, in experimentation and that they their curiosity leads them to test the the boundaries of the different you know laws of physics and, and so forth and so that lear learning process is the origins of the of what it means to be a, a scientist right and so that science would be the thing which would just be the natural continuation of this childlike 
practice of experimentation and something gets in the way and something, you know, we, we, in the business schools, we try to convince people that kids are, are wiser than adults because they haven't unlearned this curiosity. So, you know, how would you address that? How would you distinguish the way in which this maturational intuition develops from say the scientific method? Well, you've asked a lot of questions uh, in that one. That one's a complex one, but I'd have a number of things to say. I, I'm not willing to deny by any means that in effect, there's a sort of experimentalism about little kids' behaviors. And it may be that in part, it's precisely having gained those extra three months of experience that's made an important contribution to the infant's ability to suddenly start being having expectations about gravity so that when they're violated, you know, that grabs the infant's attention, right? There are uh, at least two other important things I want to say about this, because you've asked a very broad question, and I sort of probably can't address it at every level of detail. But the first is that science, it seems to me, is something that also has certain cognitively natural dimensions to it. I'm not implying that there is nothing cognitively natural about science. The disposition to sort of formulate theories, it seems to me, is something that just comes very, very naturally to humans. And as Karl Popper, for example, argued 60, 70 years ago, it doesn't require uh, a whole bunch of sort of counterexamples. It's sort of, you get a single counterexample and you leap to a theory. Why, why is this... Uh, Thing out of order in my living room. Well, my wife must have had some something in mind such that she did that, and then I might begin to hypothesize about what that was. So that's the first comment. It seems to me that there are some things about science that are as cognitively natural as the kinds of dispositions of mind that I'm looking to when I talk about religion. However, the second comment, and the, this is sort of the second big comment about science, is, is that it seems to me that isn't enough in the case of science, that in fact, that kind of speculation is something that sort of occurs all over the place in human life. But what really distinguishes science is its critical activities. That is to say, once those hypotheses have been advanced, what scientists have to do is to figure out ways to sort of test them, to figure out whether or not they stack up well with the with the facts. And so they go out and they search for facts, and sometimes they generate new facts by setting up experiments with very, very special environments a lot of the time, because that's the only way you can kind of tease out the subtle implication of a theory. Then once they start collecting that kind of factual evidence, they've got to be able to sort of know how to assess that evidence. I mean, I think that we probably have, there's good evidence of a piece with the hypothetical infant that you were describing in your question, that we're, we're sensitive to the importance of evidence, that the evidence matters. But as anyone knows who has taken a course in inferential statistics, for example, sort of assessing evidence and, and figuring out how it should be interpreted and making, you know, the ability to analyze its import is, is an extremely difficult task that takes a huge amount of education. So the difference between sort of the scientific approach and the more folk scientific or intuitive approach to navigating the world is partially due to a different view of evidence and the role of evidence and a sensitivity to evidence, formal structure around the inquiry, a level of abstraction. I think you talk about what makes humans 
different from pre-humans is this ability to go across domains or modules, right? To draw inferences or ideas from one area and, and transfer them to other areas. Is, is that ability something which is at the heart of the scientific enterprise or is that something that, that is pre-scientific? Well, I think that the answer to that can be that it's both. <laughs> uh, that is to say that it may well, I think that capacity existed before science existed, but I think that it is in some ways at the heart of scientific activity. Uh, certainly scientists quite regularly use analogical reasoning. Uh, and I take it that's a quintessential illustration of the, of the sorts of capacities that you're talking about. I mean, I, I coined the notion of maturational naturalness in order to avoid strong claims about nativism or innateness or even modules. But what you're alluding to is what the archaeologist, cognitive archaeologist Steve Mython has called cognitive fluidity. This notion that sort of what makes us different, at least in part, is that we don't have the kind of minds that some evolutionary psychologists have said we have. That is to say that we have these sort of encapsulated modules that deal with the host of particular kinds of problems that I've been alluding to. Everything this is like from the Cosmides, Cosmides and Tubi kind of approach. The well-known metaphor is that the mind is like a Swiss army knife, right? And it has all these specialized tools that can be sort of pulled out. Well, Mythen argues that's really this, the right story about our distant prehistoric ancestors, perhaps. But it, it's not the right story about us, that, that among other things, and principally, the development of an elaborate and complex natural language enables us to, as he's puts it, develop cognitive fluidity between these capacities so that information from one can be used in, in other domains. I mean, we quite routinely, well, sorry, you're in Berkeley and I'm in Atlanta, so neither of us do this so much anymore, but I spent my first 33 years in the North and before I came to Atlanta. And there in the wintertime, especially in those days, you, you quite routinely talk to your car, begging it to start and, and hoping it will uh, be able to sort of withstand the, the rigors of the winter. Just like most of us talk to our computers. What are we doing? Well, I mean, we're transferring our theory of mind, really, the notion that we can detect other things out there in our environment that have minds and that we understand how minds work. And we sort of, that, that's a coping uh, ability that we have for getting along in the world that, that comes extremely naturally to us. And so it's really good if we can sort of act like we can use that in other domains. And so we do. Sometimes it feels like we've done it effectively. And then other times when the car just won't start, we're pretty clear that all the coaxing didn't help. Right. So, so I guess these are things which you sometimes you refer to as transfers or, or, or breaches, but they, they, the only way you identify their mistake is through the scientific lens. I think the, the view of, of, some people in judgment decision-making would be, oh, look, gotcha, look at all these kind of irrationalities. And I think there's an entirely different approach, which is to say that, hey, all these things which appear to be illusions or errors or, or mistakes, you know, they're, they're fairly effective in the context in which they are used most of the time, right? So you talk in the book about how when you're walking on a ship in one direction versus the other direction, you perceive the, the speed of the ship to be changing. There's the uh, optical illusions that we, we've all seen, right? Even when you're aware of them, 
you still continue to experience them. It's just that the system too will kick in and tell you, Hey, just don't, don't act on it. Right. You know, you know, it's there. You can't make yourself stop seeing it, but you know enough to know that you shouldn't act on it. But those, those so-called illusions or mistakes or errors are kind of an, almost inevitable byproducts of the, the way in which they're, they're designed this, this type of intuition. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. I mean, part of the reason that I started with some optical illusions has to do with precisely the notion that maturationally natural capacities influence sort of everything from the perceptual front end through the cognitive workings and all the way through to the, the motoric uh, behavioral outcome, so to speak. So natu natural so, doesn't mean accurate, right? And there's no, oh, no, and there's not, there's no evolutionary pressure to force the, this natural intuition to become more accurate, right? That's correct. Yeah. Evolution doesn't necessarily get us to the truth. It gets us to a condition where we're able to propagate our genes. And oftentimes that coincides reasonably well with a fairly accurate account of affairs, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, so that ship, for example, I, I, anybody who's a mariner who has been on large ships out in the open ocean, I've learned all of them know about this illusion. But I was a complete novice. It was the very first time I had ever been on a ship out in the ocean. And for me, it was astonishing because I had no one had warned me that depending on sort of how you're moving on the ship will influence your sense of how fast the ship is moving. And what is particularly striking is when you... Uh, sort of move from one position that creates one kind of illusion to the other, and then the shift is just sort of astonishing. But that's all about sort of how our perceptual systems are built. We're, we, you know, we have a visual system that evolved in a world without any machines, the modern ilk. So it turns out that our, our machinery, we've developed all kinds of ways of tricking our eyes. Think about, there are plenty of sophisticated things with computers, but I mean, simple things. Think about the old days when, you know, you would go to the movie theater and there would be a, a string of light bulbs around the periphery of the sign and those light bulbs would be timed. But what, what you saw was motion, but it was just the timing of the bulbs when they were going on and off. I mean, again, we're not, we don't have a visual system built to sort of manage that sort of stuff very well. And so we are subject to errors. The point about, the, about those illusions, though, is one that the famous philosopher of psychology, Jerry Fodor, made a long time ago, and that is that they are persisting illusions. And that's an argument, again, for this sort of encap strong encapsulation view, which is to say, even though you come to understand what's going on in the illusion, it doesn't affect the fact that you still see the illusion. You can't correct what you see on the basis of what you know. And so his argument is that's an evidence that visual input is encapsulated, that it isn't penetrated by sort of our central knowledge. And so I think the key illusion that is at the heart of the book is this idea of attribution agency, right? The intentional stance where you, you, you see objects as having some intention, right? I mean, I guess it was referred to as animism at some point, right? I mean, I remember reading the, the pre-Socratics and kind of the emergence of philosophy was all about kind of shrinking the scope of agency in the, in the world. That was sort of the thing which ignited, you know, philosophy and science. And, and indeed, I think that this is at the heart of the distinction that we're going to 
get to between religion and, and science is this scope of agency attribution. But you offer up a, a theory, which is that, okay, there are things out there with agency, things without, and you attribute it and you don't. And you can make two types of errors, right? One is that you attribute agency to something which doesn't have it. And then the other is you, you don't attribute agency to things that, that have it. And the cost of one type of mistake is higher than the other. And so we're evolved to make more false positives than false negatives. Is that, is that a fair statement? And that's kind of something which we're, even if we work on overcoming it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to overcome. So if we're looking at dots on the screen, we, we get inside the head of the dot and figure out, well, what, what is that dot going to do, right? What does it want to do? What's it trying to achieve when it's kind of moving around on the screen? Yeah. Again, you've, you've touched on a whole bunch of topics. First of all, this sort of notion of agency detection, I take it as a sort of very, very elementary component of, of a larger construct that is encompassed by theory of mind. That is what things out there are the agents and have at least proto-minds or maybe even developed minds. One of the claims is that in the history of modern science, what we've seen is a progressive restriction on the domains in which we are willing to sort of regard attributions of agency as legitimate explanations. I mean, in the ancient world, you know, the oceans, the atmosphere, the weather, uh, these things were gods. They were agents. And slowly but surely, modern science has, has brought ever-increasing and more progressive restriction on the domains where we say we're allowed to sort of refer to agents and think we've got a, a good explanation. You're absolutely right. I mean, the dots illustration is, as, as, as I know you know, one that is indeed built into the developmental literature. If you show baby screens where you've got two screens, for example, they can look at either one, right? Each of them has dots in them. The dots are the same size, the dots are the same colors, the dots move at exactly the same speeds in the screens. The dots change direction at exactly the same moments that they do in each screen. But in one screen, where you, and in each case, you've got multiple dots in each screen, right? Where in effect, one of those dots looks like it's chasing one of the some of the other dots or stalking them or and sure enough reliably in pre-verbal infants and this is one of those findings that is well replicated by the way those pre-verbal infants attention will disproportionately attend to that screen where it looks like in short we've got a dot that's an agent and no it's just a dot <laughs> I mean, a great deal of uh, research, again, about what I'm calling maturationally natural systems has to do with things like face recognition. Uh, and again, face recognition is another kind of, another maturationally natural capacity that religions sometimes seize upon and, and all kinds of iconography. But the dots don't even have faces. And the babies are already attentive to it. They're disposed to sort of, you know, pay attention to that. I think amongst all of the maturationally natural systems, the one that is sort of key to most of those, I mean, I'm probably being needlessly cautious here. I, I guess I'm willing to say that pretty much all of those systems out there that we count as religions, this agency detection and theory of mind is probably the one that is most prominent and most prominent in the way that religions deploy it and cue it. And, and of course, the point about this is, is that because these systems are natural, cognitively natural, because they're intuitive, because they're automatic, because they're instantaneous. It just means that folks instantly know 
how to manage them. They don't need to be taught that God thinks about certain things certain ways, or that if he, if he thinks about certain things certain ways, then he must want certain outcomes to you know, go in one direction as opposed to another. Those are inferences that are just automatic. We get them for free. I, again, I mean, that's part of the point about maturationally natural systems. They come with a host of free inferences, and these inferences are unconscious. In the same way that you know, again, for example, if there's a contaminant over there, right? I mean, you don't go near that. You get away from it. Uh, you don't let it touch you. Those, again, are all sort of automatic inferences. An awful lot of this sometimes can sort of strike folks who, who hit this literature initially as sort of obvious. And in some ways, that's exactly right. This is explaining the obvious, but it's explaining why it's obvious, because critters that don't come built with these capacities, it isn't obvious. It's so easy to see this in other animals, quite frankly. So, you know, sort of famously, if you sort of pitch a BB across the visual field of a frog, right? I mean, the frog will go for the BB. Why? Well, because it's close enough to what its visual perception is concerned with, namely, catching flies, which are food, and, you know, we sort of are amused by that. You pull a string across this, uh, your carpet at home, and your cat is transfixed. Uh, that's all, you know, it's all it takes, even though cats didn't evolve around strings being pulled around carpets until just the last few hundred years, probably thousand years or so at the most. Right. So I think when you're Looking at the functionality of these things, you, you talk about kind of in-domain and, and out-of-domain, right? And so the example, one of the examples you use is, you know, when an animal is chasing another animal and then they mistake a UPS truck for another animal, right? Or you, you talked about the rain dance of the, the chimpanzees where, you know, you do a threat display against an enemy. So you do a threat display against a, a rainstorm, right? So it's something that makes sense within a particular domain and then, but it kind of looks ridiculous when you when you move it outside of that domain, but makes perfect sense. Dan Sperber makes a wonderful distinction between what he calls the proper domain and the real domain. And not to belabor this distinction at great length, but the proper domain is in short, the domain of stimuli and cues that led to the evolution of a capacity in the first place. That is to say, all those agents that were out there that were our predators, our, sorry, our ancestors' predators, and our ancestors got really, really very concerned about them and, and could detect them right away, right? I mean, this detection of agency. But in contrast to our the real domain, and the real domain is filled with all kinds of cultural inventions that we've come up with to trick these systems. And that, to pick a mundane example, but one that I think cuts right to the chase is, admittedly, we haven't done this much in the last year and a half, but most of us spend a fair amount of our time um, driving to the multiplex, plunking down our $10 and going in and watching those movies. But you have to understand that movies are a perfect illustration of using technology to trick our maturationally natural dispositions, perceptual dispositions. We see a whole world on those screens, but it isn't there. It's just light on a white surface and it's light changing. But for example, when that light changes, we see things like motion or we see things like people. 
then I mean, then we theory of mind kicks in, and we do all kinds of inferences are rolling there. But the way to dispel this very easily is to just get up out of your seat, walk down to the side of the of the screen, and look across it sideways, and you'll suddenly realize this is just a great perceptual illusion. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe we we've gotten this far without defining religion. I mean, as distinct from say stories or narratives or optical illusions, you know. And, and I think you use a, a definition which is different from some other definitions. You, you mentioned Stephen Jay Gould's attempt to carve a line between what we might think of as understanding the world, right, and causation, which is the domain of science, and then, you know, anything related to, to meaning or normativity, that's sort of the, the domain of the religious magisterium. And that really doesn't line up with our common sense understanding of what religion is, right? And I think, you know, his formulation works as a way of deflecting the dismissiveness of, say, Daniel Dennett and others. I mean, I wouldn't say he's dismissive, but, you know, the argument that that religion is is fiction and is is something that contains stories about people with beards up in mountaintops and so forth. You're, you're really arguing that, that religion has much more substantive content and includes theories about the world and is not simply restricted to this domain of normativity and, and meaning, right? Or that you can't talk about meaning without also talking about some causal understanding of the world. Uh, certainly, I hold that view. That's right. Let me back up and just make one quick qualification, and that is I actually don't offer any definitions of religion. I'm really not interested in definitions of religion. I'm not worried about that. You know, what I'm interested in is sort of cognition and how it impacts a whole host of systems out there in the world that we call religions. I, I don't know if they have something in common or not. I think cognitively they probably do. But but to go on to the, the Gould point, yeah, I, I criticize Gould's position. You're quite right in the final chapter of the book. His way of sort of making peace between science and religion is to sort of attribute explanatory endeavors and descriptive endeavors about the way the world is and the facts about the world to science. And then to sort of argue that religion is concerned with values and morals and and meaning. And there are a variety of criticisms I have, including the fact that it seems to me, as you've just correctly pointed out, you can't do meaning without having explanations. The, the, The meaning involves a whole list of presumptions about the proper explanations about the world. But also, I think that there's a sort of uh, dismissiveness that's implicit in Gould's position, and it's implicit in a lot of the academics' takes on religion. Gould, at one point, I mean, quite straightforwardly, uh, a host of folks are creationists out there in American Christianity, for example. You know, the notion that, I mean, that's an explanatory theory. That's a view about how a whole bunch of facts about the world came to be as they are. Gould's response to this is to simply say that they don't represent the magisterium of religion. And my view is, is that this is just, this is just an untenable position. I mean, what you're saying is is that you're dismissing the religiosity of literally tens, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world. I don't subscribe to that particular way of trying to sort of make peace between science and religion. So you also make a distinction between what 
you call religion and, and theology. And I found this interesting because you argue that, that theology is just as counterintuitive as science is, right, in a way, because it, it's, you know, it's very abstract. It, it starts getting further and further away from some of these folk intuitions and that it's within the domain of the highly literate and it's supported by texts and institutions. And it's not something that we see in more primitive societies. Could you elaborate on that distinction? I mean, you have this wonderful two by two. I, I, I wanted to talk about that from the very beginning, because as, as someone who teaches management, we do everything in two by twos. And the, I, I found that to be like a really, really cool two by two, where on the X axis you have, I guess it's kind of scope of agency attribution. And then on the, on, or the realm of agency attribution, I forget what it was. And then on the Y axis, you have kind of this intuitive and, and kind of counterintuitive axis. Could you just talk about that? I wish I could throw it up as a, as a slide here. Sure. The, one of the sort of crisp ways of capturing this is to say that I think that from a cognitive perspective, the sort of standard religion science comparisons that everybody has been engaged in at least since Darwin. I mean, there are literally whole floors of libraries virtually now that could be filled with books that address these things. But from a cognitive perspective, that's a sort of misbegotten comparison. Why? Because science and religion are much more like theology and common sense explanations than they are like each other. What do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's start with the case that you've offered here, and that is the science and theology comparison. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that theology is as radically counterintuitive as science, but it's certainly radically counterintuitive. I mean, take the any number of conventional doctrines of sort of mainline traditional historic Christianity. Three people are one person. Well, no, that's counterintuitive, right? Jesus is both... It's like quantum physics. Yes, exactly. It's, uh, Jesus is both God and he's both, you know, completely God and completely human. Well, that one's also sort of a funny counterintuitive kind of claim, and pretty radically so, so that it's extremely difficult to understand, and people can write tome after tome after tome about this in the same way that scientists produce huge amounts of work arguing about the details of particular scientific theories. Likewise, theologians employ many of the same sort of cognitive and intellectual capacity, inductive inference, inductive inference, you know, probabilistic assessments of probability, you know, all those sorts of things. In that regard, then, I do want to try to make a distinction between theology as a thoroughly kind of reflective and, and oftentimes quite counterintuitive sort of enterprise, thinking about religion and about religious claims, as opposed to what I call popular religion. Religion that is, you know, the religion, you know, not to put too fine an edge on it, the religion of the masses of people, historically, the overwhelming majority of whom were not literate in human history and in plenty of places in the world are still not literate. Uh, so one of the things that you see right away is, is that if literacy, for example, is necessary, as I argue, it is necessary for theology, for theological activity of any extended sort, and likewise for some, it's not at all necessary for, for what I'm calling popular religion. I mean, religion predates literacy. 
it's very invention. So surely literacy is not a condition that is required for religion. And one of the things that also follows from this is, is that religion doesn't need theology. Lots of things out there that we, when we say people are doing things that we count as religious, they're living in cultures where there isn't a theologian to be found or a theological institution to be found. My former colleague here at Emory, now long since retired, but Frederick Barth, spent a year living amongst the Bakhtamon in Highland, New Guinea, a group of 183 people. And he wrote a book about their sort of what we would basically call their religious beliefs, their rituals and uh, religious beliefs. And one of the comments that he makes in that book is that he, he never heard a single theological claim the entire year he was there. So theology is not necessary for religion. Religion involves these intuitive, maturationally natural forms of what I'm calling popular religion overwhelmingly turns on sort of cueing those systems and all of those automatic inferences about how agents work, about how spaces are designated, about things like recognizing faces or icons. Likewise with language, I, I started into this a little earlier, but you know, as I said, language is sort of the parade case for what I'm calling a maturationally natural system. But how do religions, it's, I mean, obviously, religious people talk. I mean, everybody knows that, right? I mean, we all talk. We're all talkers. We're a talkative species. But, but how do religions engage that capacity as a maturationally natural system? And the answer is glossolalia. Glossolalia is so-called speaking in tongues. First thing is that Christians should understand this isn't something they invented. It's in loads of religious traditions across human history and across cultures and across religions. But what's going on there? Well, I mean, you know, humans start producing utterances. We, again, these systems are mandatory. They are automatic. You can't shut them off. I mean, one way that Jerry Fodor nicely illustrated this was, if you're listening right now, right, I mean, you can't avoid hearing the sounds I'm making as language. You can't hear them in the same way that you hear those sounds. Your interpreter kicks in automatically. So what happens when you start hearing people making utterances? The first inference is, this must be language, right? And if it's language, the next inference is, it must mean something. So I better, you know, sort of be attentive. Glossolalia, heteroglossia, I mean, but glossolalia in particular is the, you know, a classic way in which religions, again, cue a maturationally natural system and get it rolling. Do we have these capacities in other domains? Sure we do. And that's what I'm calling broadly common sense explanations about the world. So theology differs from popular religion in the same way that science, professional science, differs from sort of common sense explanations about the world. As you were pointing out much earlier, I mean, you know, sort of as you put it, folk science, what the deliverances of our maturationally natural systems are about all sorts of issues that science tackles. How objects, uh, you know, projectile motion, for example, to pick a really juicy and wonderful illustration. This is the McCluskey test. Yes, Michael McCloskey, I'm proud to say a, a product a long, long, long time ago from Emory University, who is at Johns Hopkins, did just some spectacular research on this uh, a few decades now ago, but showing that uh, if you give people very, very simple problems in physics, you know, common mechanical problems, there are intuitions about these things. They've got these intuitions, and they're pretty powerful intuitions, and they're dead wrong. But as you correctly pointed out, 
they're good enough for people to get by under most circumstances, even to the point of being able to catch a fly ball in baseball. It turns out when you you know you ask people how that baseball is actually traveling, they they'll give you a, a what is a pretty seriously and importantly incorrect description. Most folks will, but in fact, outfielders know how to do it. You pair that insight with the the Barrett and Keel results. Could you talk a bit about that? Uh, sure, Barrett and Kyle. Yeah, Frank Kyle. They have these uh, wonderful experiments. This was done by Justin Barrett back in the mid-1990s, in which they show that even if it's the case that you give people accounts of, in short, let's say, religious topics, that even if the accounts are completely, as it were, orthodox, so to speak, that is to say there's nothing in them that is contrary to orthodox understandings of sort of who God is or how God works or that sort of thing, that when folks process these kinds of inputs and then recall them, they don't recall them the way they actually you know, the actual inputs, what they do is they carry out what they cleverly call theologically incorrect accounts. So in a lot, an awful lot of these vignettes, what happens is God, God's really still really cool, and he's still got a tremendous amount of power and everything, but he's really a lot more like a kind of Superman than he is God. So he does hear certain things that are closer to him better than he hears things that are far away. He does do things sequentially. I mean, he's really fast, but he can, you know, zip from one place to another all over the world to get these things done. But that, it turns out, is the kind of memory representations that thoroughly, you know, serious, dedicated believers have. So they argue that there is a kind of theological incorrectness that inevitably infiltrates religious understandings why? Because of these maturationally natural systems. The theologies construct very, very elaborate, complex, intellectually sophisticated accounts. But when folks are sort of on the ground doing straightforward inference about a world in which they live and in which agents operate, that stuff sort of just drifts off. And all of these maturationally natural dispositions kick in instead. So people will draw unorthodox inferences. So this is a corollary. So like the Shane Frederick concept that in decision-making that you don't actually replace the the intuition, you, you kind of overlay something on top, but you never actually displace the intuition. So when a religious person familiarizes themselves with theology and, and doctrine, it doesn't replace kind of the, the folk understanding of, of religion. It just sort of, it's a layer on top, which can either intervene or or not depending on the level of reflection that somebody's engaging in so maybe there's there's room here for a cognitive reflection test around religion that you could develop yeah i mean i mean you've hit the you've hit the bullseye with your comment because of course as you well know one of the points i'm making in the book is this is also true about science that is to say one of the, the important morals of that McCloskey research that I was uh, alluding to a little earlier is he gives these kinds of simple problems, again, of projectile motion and things like that, to students who have successfully completed even college-level courses in physics. And what he shows is 
is that about in that population, somewhere between about a quarter and a third of the, of the students, you know, after the semester's over, and in short, they revert right back to their sort of folk physics. That's no different from the religious folks reverting right back to their sort of folk popular religion, in contrast to the theological formulation. These students have learned their Newtonian mechanics, and uh, when faced with a problem subsequently, uh, a whole bunch of them. In short, what I would argue is the maturationally natural intuitions persistently intrude. They never go away. You're exactly right, this notion of sort of what, what an education is about, an education of, of any sort in a, in a literate world. Is, is building on top of, it's an overlay over those, those dispositions, those cognitive dispositions that we're never going to get rid of. This is the point, again, about the persistence of the illusions. You're not going to get rid of them. You can know more stuff, but they're going to constantly keep popping up, so to speak. Now, there's a part of the book where you talk about kind of what leads to successful kind of religious narratives and, and ideas and and there's an element there's there's some optimal amount of counterintuitiveness that is sort of baked in this is sort of a, a meme story right it's about the ideas and stories have to be they have to be memorable they have to be easily communicable and 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 they have to have you know be functional to some degree and so there are these trade-offs if you want the story to survive and part of it includes a, a bit of counterintuitiveness, like a talking snake or a burning bush or, or, or something like that. Could, could you elaborate on that piece of the story? I mean, interestingly, throughout our conversation so far, we've actually mostly focused on what I've called the radically counterintuitive representations of science or theology. I take no credit for the fundamental insight here. I mean, this is unequivocally the contribution of Pascal Boyer in his wonderful book. Actually, he has the view and lays it out in some journal articles and things like that 10 years before, but in his book, Religion Explained, which now appeared about 15 years ago, the argument is, is that, and remember, we're talking about in the evolution of most religions in the course of human history, we're talking about systems that have developed in non-literate cultures. So you don't have a book that you can go to and sort of retain the stories or retain the, the ritual instructions. In short, you've got to remember all this. So then one of the points about this is there's going to be incredible selection pressure in favor of, of things that are highly memorable, as opposed to things like scientific treatises, which are incredibly difficult to remember. This is why taking science classes is so difficult, right? Boyer argues, and this was his you know, great insight, it seems to me one of his many great insights, is that unlike those radically counterintuitive representations, religions quite standardly traffic in fairly, what I would call modestly, counterintuitive representations, which is to say they don't actually change things very much. They just change things a tiny little bit. In any given story that appears in the Christian Bible, for example, right? I mean, Jesus isn't sort of all of these things at once, right? I mean, in one, he's walking on water, and another, he turns water into wine, and another, he raises a fellow from the dead, and another, he's keenly aware that a particular person has touched him. He can read other people's minds in some stories. But the notion is 
in any given story, right, the, the representation is one, the, the god, in short, having a very modest amount of counterintuitive abilities. I mean, you know, when Jesus is walking on the water, does he still know who his mom is? Sure he does. Does he still see across the water to the boat? Sure he does. Does he still know how to speak his native language? Of course he does. I mean, the point about this is, is that with a minimal sort of tweak, so to speak, in our intuitions, most of the overwhelming majority of the inferences still come right through. Right. So he's not, he's not floating above the water. He's, he's walking on the water. And, you know, Lazarus wasn't dead for very long. He was, he was just kind of dead for a couple hours, right? So if it was you raise somebody from the dead who died, you know, 100 years ago, that would be a lot more, more counterintuitive, right? Well, I take it that would be more counterintuitive, but still, if, it, if that was sort of all that was happening in the story, it would still be fairly minimal. I mean, in short, when we talked, you mentioned uh, a little earlier this notion of sort of types of violations, that is to say, breaches and transfers. What happens in representations is either in minimally counterintuitive representations, any kind of counterintuitive representation, is, is that you either violate, there's a breach of some principle that we subscribe to. So, you know, the snake can talk. Oh, well, snakes don't talk. That's a violation of anything we understand about sort of linguistic abilities, uh, mental capacities, and so on, if, if snakes can do it, right? Actually, that's not a good illustration from a breach. Jesus walking on the water, it's a better one. I mean, you know, people don't walk on water. If they're on the water, they should sink. They should fall into the water. Uh, the snake is actually, I mean, it is a breach of a sort, but it's its a transfer. That, it's an example of a transfer. What we've done is we've transferred a psychological and cognitive capacity to a snake that are simply part of a species that don't have that psychological or, uh, capacity. Uh, but in each of these stories, the argument is, is that almost all of them involve but a single violation of this sort. Now, what's the point about that? One, highly memorable. I mean, even prior to that, highly attention-grabbing, actually as a kind of footnote to this, in a, a direction about where the next book is that I'm contemplating uh, getting started on here. I, actually, I'm started on it, but writing is the fact, well, let's put it this way, there's a, a consequence of this position that figures in this next book, and that is Hollywood has figured this out. There are a number of domains in the world that have figured out similar sorts of issues, right, about, that religions have as well. But, but Hollywood has, and they have most especially in the last couple decades, which is to say, if you read any film criticism now amongst film scholars, for example, overwhelmingly what they're focused on is the fact that the whole industry has been taken over by super superhero movies. And superheroes, comic superheroes, you know, the comics of, uh, that we read, DC comics and Marvel comics and all those sorts of things as, as kids, these heroes have basically, typically most of the same properties that the gods have in religions. That is to say, they don't have 46 violations. They've got one or two. It'd be hard to write a movie about someone who is, you know, omniscient and omnipotent. It'd be a very, wouldn't be a very compelling narrative, right? <laughs> um, it's difficult to imagine. Exactly. I'd agree with that, yes. So the argument is these minimally or modestly counterintuitive representations are attention-grabbing. They are highly memorable. 
They're readily communicable. It's easy enough to cue straight away that that you do intend to communicate, that they are cultural representation. And so the argument is, surprise, surprise, evolutions, sorry, religions all over the world have generally evolved in the direction of having precisely these kinds of characters at, at sort of very central to their operations. So it's like, sci- like science fiction, right? So with science fiction, there's a slight difference in sort of the the rules of the game right maybe slight differences or in you know video games if you're watching super mario right you know the the things that he can do are a little bit different from what you could do on earth but they have their own logic and you can immediately understand that logic because it's close enough to what we understand about the world it's a very nice summary i mean you put it very well we immediately can understand the logic because it's close enough. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But it's not just, you know, science fiction. It's not just religion. It's, as I said, you know, comic books, cartoons. As kids, we, I'm probably, I'm dating myself here, but I, I mean, I remember a cartoon called Mighty Mouse. And Mighty Mouse had all sorts of, you know, capacities, sort of like Superman. But again, note in any particular episode, it was typically only one of those capacities that really mattered. He was really strong at one point, or he could fly at another point, or uh, Superman has X-ray vision, if I remember correctly. And maybe in folklore, I mean, this is not something that that turns on just sort of modern society. I mean, uh, folklore is out there. It's existed for as long as our species has been constructing narratives. They're not only just religious narratives. Now, one of the interesting insights at the end of the book is this idea that certain types of mental illness actually impair one's capacity for religion, in particular kind of autism and various aphasias. And, you know, if brain damaged people are less capable of, of religion, then, you know, this, this, I think, strengthens the case for religion being a, a natural byproduct of our cognitive abilities. Could, could you talk a bit about that? And also the new book, because the, the new book is really all about how psychological illness and brain damage can tell us a whole lot about religion. Could, could you talk about that? I'd be happy to, but I want to, I want to make two important, if I might, corrections in short. I wouldn't call it illness and I wouldn't call it damage. The term that we have typically used, and I say we, uh, this isn't the royal we. George, I wrote this book with a colleague, George Graham. Uh, yeah, I've got a, a new book out uh, called Hearing Voices and Other Matters of the Minds, What Mental Abnormalities Can Teach Us About Religions. I don't think that, uh, and so the, the, what I was going to say is the term that we almost always opt for is disorders, abnormalities, things that aren't the way the majority of a population seems to be, but to call them either illnesses or damage, I'm I would not do that, certainly with regard to autism, for example. I mean, autistic people, it's a you know, point well worth making. I mean, as to say, folks who have autism and you know, medium and high-functioning folks who have autism, it turns out for a variety of cognitive skills, they're a lot better than the so-called normal population. So there are certain sorts of things that they can do extremely well. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, illness is a, is a normative term for sure. Well, yeah, yeah. The argument that I know that you want to talk about concerns autistic spectrum disorder in particular. And the argument there is is grounded in part 
on uh, this whole conception of maturationally natural capacities, and particularly theory of mind. Simon Baron Cohen, a researcher at the University of Cambridge in the UK, uh, you know, one of the world's prominent researchers on ASD, autistic spectrum disorders, and he advanced a view and continues uh, to that is one that is not unrelated to you know sort of what I'm out to capture with this notion of maturationally natural capacities. That is to say, that, that theory of mind, I mean, I think he's got a rather more strong modular view of theory of mind. And the notion is, is that one of the prominent features of folks who have been diagnosed with ASD is that there are just almost always impairments of theory of mind inferences. That is to say, the kind of inferences that it turns out by the time that the non, uh, as they would say, the neurotypical population, by the time kids are six years of age, they can sort of carry out all kinds of elaborate inferences about what kinds of mental representations you have and whether or not they're true or false and that sort of thing. Children who have ASD are sort of famous for treating people in their environment the same way they treat objects in their environment. So in other words, they make fewer false positives, but then they will make some false negatives when it comes to attributing agency. Let's put it this way. On, on Baron Cohen's view, that's still not quite the right way to put it, because what he says is the term that he coined is mind blindness. So there isn't any attributions of false positives or false negatives, because there isn't any attributions of minds, period. People and animals are things in the world that move around, just like there are other things in the world that don't move around. And in short, right, I mean, uh, the argument is, is that these kids need to be educated into understanding that those most of those things that move around, not all of them, and the particular ways they move are diagnostic. Uh, I mean, this is the same problem a baby has to solve, right? I mean, there are plenty of things that move in your environment, including the, the pendulum or the clock. Is that an agent? Uh, well, no, it turns out its movement doesn't quite qualify. There's um, a host of patterns that, that kids pick up on. At least there's some evidence that many people with ASD don't pick up on or have to learn them the old-fashioned way, right? But, but the argument, cutting back to religion quickly, because that's really what we're interested in here, is, is that if it's the case, as you, I think, correctly asserted a little earlier in this, this discussion, that theory of mind and, and sort of agents are at the, at the core of, of sort of most religious systems, and that if I'm right, that it's sort of our maturationally natural theory of mind that makes us able to readily understand that stuff straight away to have representations that we find unproblematic and as you quite nicely put it just a little while ago although a little different close enough that we get it immediately the argument is is that if you don't have theory of mind if you are mind blind then there's at least some reason to think you may not get it immediately and that this stuff could be rather puzzling in some regards. And when I made these suggestions, I, I, I don't know if I was the first person to ever suggest this, but I was one of the sort of early ones, I guess, actually in a paper that was came out in the year 2000 that was a kind of predecessor of this book that we've been discussing, and that is to say, the naturalness of religion and why religion is natural and, 
and science is not. But since I and a few other folks have sort of explored this possibility, there's been a sort of huge literature that has arisen now, experimental literature. And, you know, I'd love to tell you that it unequivocally cuts one way or cuts the other way. It's a mixed bag, to be honest. But I want to make clear some things that I'm not asserting. I'm not asserting that autistic people cannot be raised religiously. Of course they can. I'm not asserting that they can't memorize all sorts of statements about religion. Of course they can. I'm not asserting that they would be uncomfortable even necessarily with uh, ritual. In fact, there's some reason to believe they might be a good deal more comfortable with ritual than, than neurotypical people. I'm not asserting that those rituals can't get them excited. I'm not asserting that they won't say things like, I believe in God. I, I mean, it would require rather subtle, more, more subtle tests of having to see, you know, sort of I'm suggesting that there might be reason to think there might be some impairment about their ability to carry out inferences. Well, it would have to be. It would have to be. Would require some training, perhaps, right? In ways that it would not require training for, say, normal people. Exactly, and indeed, when I mentioned the fact that, I mean, what I was alluding to is got a, in the developmental literature is called the false belief task. That is to say, neurotypical kids, by the time they are through their fifth year of life, they're solving this problem. Okay, and that is understanding that someone else can have a false belief. Many, many high, well, virtually all high-functioning people with ASD get this problem solved by the time they're in their teenage years, sort of standardly, where this happens. Well, what's going on? Well, as you just put it, about the in this specific religious case, I mean, they've just gotten a lot more experience about the world, and they've had, you know, concerned folks who talk to them about social niceties and, in short, They've sort of had to build a kind of uh, what I call an ersatz theory of mind, a kind of replacement theory of mind. They haven't got one that comes naturally, so they've got one that comes reflectively. And presumably they'd be more attracted to sort of a, a, a deistic approach to, to religion, make more intuitive sense than something that has all the kind of richness and pageantry of more traditional religion. That's a possibility. I mean, to be honest, I haven't thought about the precise form that such an influenced theology might take, but sure, that's a possibility. So last thing in towards the end of this book, and of course this was written over 10 years ago, you, you talk about the fragile foundation on which science sits, right? And that science is, because of its counterintuitive nature, it's, it's something that, that has to continually be kind of reinforced institutionally and through education, through universities and, and so forth. And for the last year and a half or so, there's been a running discussion about the precariousness of science, institutionalized science as part of our culture. So I was wondering if, if what's happened in the last year and a half has just bolstered your concern about the fragility of scientific understanding. Unequivocally. Yeah, I, I include that as one of what I call seven surprising consequences of the position in the final chapter. And I think when we live in modern America, where scientific institutions have a kind of cultural prestige in, in many quarters, and where there is such large support and funding and institutions are extensive, especially in the biomedical sciences, but, but in science more generally. 
it might be sort of puzzling for somebody to suggest that science, its existence and its persistence are fragile. But I think indeed we've we've had an experience in the last year and a half or I would maybe even argue the last four or five years that begins to get at some of the things I was concerned about. It's not even a matter so much of, of necessarily teaching a lot more science, though I think that would be a great thing and that we should have a wider understanding of science in the uh, general population in any democracy. But even just sort of, among other things, just knowledge of history. I mean, I actually, I write a blog for Psychology Today, and I wrote a piece about anti-vaxxing, anti-vaxxer, vaccine-hesitant people before the pandemic occurred. Actually, about six months before the pandemic really sort of came into fruition in the middle of 2019. You know, as I said, it doesn't require sort of... Uh, sophisticated biomedical knowledge, just the knowledge of the history of epidemics in humans, uh, in our species, is enough to, I think, convince people that um, the invention of vaccination is in fundamentally of fundamental importance. And it's absolutely crucial to the, the persistence of our modern way of life. But it's just a single illustration of the kind of cultural and social forces that are being, that have arisen and that are being manipulated. Because science is, it seems to me, finally critical to an open society to a society that permits the criticism. I mean, it is the quintessence of sort of human critical capacities. That was a point I was making much earlier in this discussion. But those critical capacities lap over into politics and into religion and into economics and into you know, every dimension of life. And, and the preservation of science is, it seems to me, a, 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 just a a major cultural force on this front. And of course, what I'm arguing in the book is that at least from the standpoint of sort of looking at human psychology and looking at the, the structure of human minds, there's, there's not great reassurance about science's ability to, to sort of continue to, to progress and to continue to exist. It's radically counterintuitive. The, the forms of, of intellectual activity and cognitive processing that are required involve extensive education and tremendous discipline. These institutions are very, very expensive. So yeah, I mean, there, you, can, you, can, you can see any number of fronts on which if all of these pillars aren't in place, then science sort of begins to falter. And so if scientists fail to understand how counterintuitive their practices really are, then they'll, they'll fail to understand why they have difficulty communicating their insights. Yeah, absolutely. Remember, I argued early on that for Kahneman System 1, I think there are two stories there. There's a maturational naturalist and there's a practice naturalist. And both of those are foundations for intuition for things that become ready and automatic and instantaneous and easy. They're cognitively easy things. But practice naturalness arises from extensive experience. It's about getting expertise. Now, when I use the term expertise, I don't mean anything too fancy about that. And to use an example you gave, I mean, 
riding a bicycle. There are a whole bunch of people who are experts at riding bicycles. You and I probably, I am, uh, you are, you know, or at least I used to be. We can Can't do forget. it. Not a problem. We had a lot of experience at it. We knew instantly how to solve various problems that might arise as we were riding along. But likewise, to, to pick another common example, literacy, our ability to simply write. I mean, no, as I tell students, I'll tell them, I give them a sentence to write, and they write it longhand. And I ask them, in the middle of that fourth word, when you were going from the transition from the second to the third letter, did you think about it? And the answer, of course, is no. This is just something that flies automatically. Well, why? Not because that's anything in our genes. Not because that's anything that's innate. That's because we spent 12 years going to school, learning how to read, learning how to write. That's no less true for the scientists. The scientists have been gone another 10 or 12 years, and they've learned an area of empirical inquiry cold, and they are, have become eminently familiar with it. But what that means is they've become experts, they've acquired practice naturalness. And so note, here's the punchline, right? It's now become intuitive for them in a way that sometimes it is difficult to remember that it is not intuitive for people who are not experts. Anyone who has been a teacher knows about this phenomenon. All of a sudden, it's not, and because oftentimes, I mean, you know, I, I think George Bernard Shaw got this all wrong, right? I mean, he said those who can do and those who can't teach. But many people who can do can realize that simply doing, I mean, that's, that's a way to help teaching and to aid learning. But sometimes, and in fact, oftentimes, it's not enough. You've got to be able to teach. The teacher has to know how to say. And things that are intuitive are precisely the things that we find usually somewhat laborious to say. Well, Robert, it's been fascinating talking to you. Hopefully we can all go and start cultivating our scientific intuition, if that's not an oxymoron. Uh, I recommend everybody check this out, Why Religion is Natural and Science is Not, and also the latest book, Hearing Voices and Other Matters of the Mind. I hope to chat again soon, Robert, and when the next book comes out. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.